invite you to just pause for a moment in prayer with me. Gracious Lord, we're going to look at 1 Timothy. We've been here two weeks in a row. We're going to be in the same place for the third week. And just uh, looking at your word, we could spend a lifetime doing that, coming at it from this angle and from that angle and the other angle. And our prayer is that there be some more light we see again as we approach it from our particular angle this morning to your glory that we may learn and that you'll empower us to take away what it is that you have for us in this word today. Amen. So if you're visiting, we've uh, done two messages on this one, this section, and they're available on the, through YouTube and through our website. Uh, you can find it there. So I'll, some things I'll be mentioning in passing, which we dealt with in Fuller before. But we're going to start off at a slightly different point. We're going to start off with 1 John. Oh, before we do, let's go back to that one there, okay? You know how the Lord is... Um, I want to see the one without the words, so if you can go backwards... Does that look a bit like a map of Australia to you? You know, it's a bit, for me it's a bit like uh, the Lord's ahead of us. This is sort of like uh, Australia in COVID times. Because WA is sort of removed <laughs> and all the barriers are there. <laughs> God's there before us, you know, <laughs> keeping us safe. <laughs> anyway, going on. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And James, James says something similar in 4.4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And so as we move into this third message concerning the roles of men and women in our society, we're going to run headlong into the fact that the Bible simply differs from the predominant position in our culture. The world out there is very much driven by some very strong forces into what they call an egalitarian position, which wants to obliterate every difference between the masculine and feminine so that all is one. And the world says there are no real differences between men and women except for the, the physical differences, which they actually can't deny because they do have to look into a mirror, and chief of which is childbearing. And so that means we're going to be swimming against a stronger and a stronger tide and we'll be forced to not just drift along anymore and hope for the best. We might have to make important choices the world's view or the Bible's view? And if you crave acceptance and approval from the intellectual academic system in the present world, then you will not be faithful to God on the roles of men and women. And one thing we're seeing increasingly with the tide of that egalitarian position is confusion. One of the people speaking into that space is Jordan Peterson. He's pointing out very well what the confusion is doing to the generation, current generations of young men. Because the forces out there are saying that the older men are a male, tyrannical patriarchy and they are a force that we must overthrow. Simply translated for the young guy, it means all men are bad. And they feel 
tarred by that same sort of stigma and they don't really know how to live. They're confused. That's the men. And the women are encouraged to consider that if you have a career, and particularly if it earns lots of money, that's more important than nurturing relationships. It's more important than growing people, bringing new lives into the world. And the women are being told that you can have it all despite the impossible demands of doing a career which needs 60 or 70 hours a week and the home demands of growing people as well. They say, you can do all that. And the confusion over this issue is robbing us of something very important and that is the joy of being a man and the joy of being a woman because God intended it to be fun to be satisfying to be a man, to be satisfying to be a woman, and to enjoy the way he made us, to enjoy our equality and to enjoy our differences. And what we've seen in our previous two messages, first and foremost, is that both men and women were created in the image of God. Both are equal in value and equal in personhood. And so... If you just look around you, at the people seated around you this morning, what you are seeing is the most remarkable thing in all of God's creation. You are seeing around you creatures more like God than anything else in the universe. No animals, not even the angels are in the image of God. Only men and women are in the image of God. You and me are reflections of God. That is truly amazing. And so I say, women, do not receive the world's lie that you are inferior to men, somehow second class or not important. Receive the truth that you stand before God equal in value with men. Now think about this. If you think about it logically, the push of feminists to be able to do everything that a man does and with success usually measured by how much money you're making, they're really saying, we don't like being a woman. We don't like, we don't rejoice in our femininity. It's not enough. We want more. And they don't understand the high value they already have that God has already given them. And so men... Don't receive the world's lie that you're better than women. We're created equal in the image of God. I've got a testimony for the men from a guy called Wayne. And he said that in his early marriage, he didn't listen very well to what his wife had to say. I'm not asking for any amens here, gentlemen. He didn't receive information very well from his wife. So they'd have these discussions. Well, what do you think we ought to do today? And she'd say, well, I think A. And so he would give us seven reasons why her suggestion was wrong and say we should do B. Well, it's not a surprise that after a while she no longer gave her reasons. She felt that her voice was taken away, that he didn't value her wisdom and her gifts, her preferences and her suggestions and her desires. Eventually, Wayne realised 
that he had thought she should just be like him. I mean, wasn't that the way that it's supposed to be? If I like it, you'll like it. And he realised it was really like his ears were closed. And Wayne realised he needed to listen and he needed to honour and he needed to value her preferences and her values and her desires and her insights because she was equal to him. And he found that when she talked and he really listened, that he actually benefited greatly from what she had to say. Because God had given him a godly wife who prayed and who thought and who talked well and was a great blessing. And so the question for both genders arising out of Wayne's testimony is, do you really value the other? Do you value them? Or do you find yourself too often just listening with your answer running in the background? Do you perhaps fundamentally only want to do something with the other person which you enjoy? Are you discounting her or his advice and thinking about how to win an argument against it because you've got your own preferred options? And I think a measure of equality is that you start a conversation with the possibility the other person may have a better idea than you and unless you're willing to change your idea if their idea is better then I don't think you're really taking seriously the equal value of each person. So why do you think all this controversy about men and women is coming into the church? I think it's because God wants to purify his church. He wants to take the standard up a notch and he wants to correct some of the wrongful mistakes and that be more faithful with, to scripture. Because there's no doubt that due to the curse, both men and women have messed up. Men have been tyrannical. They have not led well. And women have been contentious. So let's see if we can improve that situation a little. So just to remind us, we've been looking at 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. We see verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and in full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. So what's the context of that bit of scripture? And the context is that Paul is speaking about when the church is assembled together. He's talking about Sunday church. And that's what we see if you go back a little bit to verses 8 and 9. Therefore, and, and thank, uh, thank you Ross for reading this earlier on, I, therefore I want men everywhere to pray lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. That's, he's talking about what to do at church service. And I want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So it's in that setting largely of a church service that Paul says in verse 12, I permit no woman to teach or have authority over men. So this, this having authority and teaching are functions that are carried out by the elders in the church. 
And that's essentially the same as what a pastor does. And it's specifically the functions unique to elders that Paul's prohibiting for women in the church. So some say, oh, it's just a letter. It's written to a particular church with a particular problem. It's, oh, it's probably women who are teaching something heretical. But that's only a guess, seeing as the letter doesn't say they're teaching falsehoods. And if we're going to talk about the context, it's important. Well, let's go to chapter 5 of that same letter to that same church for more information about these women. Let's go to chapter 5, verse 13. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So that's probably the, more of the context of the women in that church. So Paul's not talking just to a few women who are talking heresy. He's actually just talking about the problem of gossip. So in that context, he speaks to all women and he permits no woman to teach or have authority over men. Well, others object. They say, well, Paul prohibits this because, you know, women, they weren't, they didn't have the opportunities to be as educated in the first century. They just weren't as qualified for teaching or governing roles. Now we saw in the last uh, message that by going back to Genesis, is Paul's going, saying there's something more fundamental than what your culture says about it. And it's not about your standard of your education. We go back to how God made us in the first place. And so Paul's not saying women shouldn't speak because they're not competent. Remember, at that stage of the church, you didn't actually have any theological colleges. You didn't have any seminaries. You didn't have any courses to be our church leader. And let's remember that, in actual fact, there was pretty widespread basic literacy for men and women. And there were many well-educated women. So it's not about competence. Well, others object and they say, women had leadership positions in the ancient church. Take Priscilla. And indeed, Ephesus was the home church of Priscilla and Aquila. And Priscilla knew her scripture well. She knew it well enough to instruct a talented preacher, Apollos, a gifted Bible teacher in AD 51. Because she'd probably learned heaps from Paul, because Paul had been there for three years teaching beforehand. And yet, Paul does not allow even the well-educated Priscilla to teach men in the public assembly of the church. reason was not because of a lack of education, but it was the order of creation, the role that God had given men and women when he created them. He'd given man a leadership role. So there's another part of scripture that talks about the same issue, the church in Corinth. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Verse 33, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it reached? So that situation there, it's interesting to see Paul's not prohibiting all public speech by women. Oh, Let's go back earlier to see that in the same chapter, verse 5. But every woman who prays and prophesies, hold on, 
women are praying and prophesying there. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonours her head, it's the same as having her head shaved. Well, staying in that context, we're looking for more clues as to what Paul's saying. And we find what we find in chapter 14 is something interesting. We have an open sharing and testimony time in the church services. Look at chapter 14, verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Now, does that sound like a church sharing time to me, to you? Sure does to me. And about that time, it goes up the second half of uh, verse 26, it goes on to say, in all that sharing time, everything must be done so that church may be built up. And then there's some clues to the process of how to do things so that the church may be built up. And we see in verse 29, well, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone might be instructed and encouraged. Remember the spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. And we flow straight on from the testing of this information that's been presented into verse 34 out of that had that sharing time and then verse 34 women should remain silent in the churches they are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says so what's going on those two things sort of seem a bit different if they want to inquire about something they should ask their own husbands at home for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church and so i think what we see is that paul's allowing women to speak and give prophecies in the church meetings but he's not allowing them to then speak up and evaluate or give critiques of the prophecies that have been given because that would be a ruling or that would be, what a, that would be a governing function with respect to the whole church. And so you understand that when people are prophesying there, they're not talking about it in the same way as the prophets we know spoke and made the New Testament. They're, they're, speaking, they're not speaking words of God equal to Scripture, but they're rather saying, I think this is what God is saying to me. This is what I understand. They're speaking things spontaneous to their mind. That's prophesying what they think the Lord is telling them. Now tied to the governing and the teaching role of men, then who are doing the evaluation of whether what's being said is good, uh, tied to that is also uh, the qualifications for the elders. We go back to Timothy now to the very next chapter chapter 3, and if we looked in Titus, chapter 1, we'll see some things about the elders, the governors, the teachers. An elder or a bishop, an overseer, must be the husband of one wife. That's 1 Timothy 3, 2. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife. And in verse 4, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. And so they strongly suggest there's a connection between the family and church. They suggest that when the headship of the husband at home leads naturally to the primary leadership to the headship of spiritual men in the churches. 
Same type of quality of headship in both places, in the home and in the church. So <clears throat> think about applying this Bible wisely to teaching ministries and Aquila and Priscilla again. Let's go back there. And in Acts 18.26, if you wanted to look it up, you'd see they instructed Apollos in the way of God more accurately. And when they say instructed, that's a plural word. It means there's more than one instructing. And it means that they're doing it in a private conversation, sort of like a home Bible study. So it, Paul's saying there's approval for men and women together talking about the meaning of the text of Scripture in, in uh, private situations. And that is a different thing from what he was talking about in 1 Timothy 12, 2, where he's talking about the public teaching of the Word of God to an assembled church. And so, you know, there's lots of good books written, for example, by women. And when we read a book by a woman, it's much like a private conversation between the author and us. If we took the whole Bible, looked from end to end, Genesis to Revelation, you would find that there is never an instance where a woman does the teaching of God's word to an assembled group of men. It was the priests in the Old Testament who did the Bible teaching or the teaching of the law, and they were all men. In the New Testament, elders all had to be men. And that's consistent with Paul's specific instruction that we're reading today. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. That's not just an isolated pattern. It bears, uh, it, it goes all the way across the whole scriptures. Now when it comes to today and contemporary churches and offices that women fulfill, there are many things such as a treasurer or staff positions like youth ministers or counselling directors or children's minister and so forth. Many places that women can exercise and the only question is really whether that role they're given includes a ruling and teaching function reserved for elders in the New Testament. And if not, then all those things, all those jobs are open to women because we don't want to prohibit anything that the New Testament doesn't prohibit. Well, there were occasionally women like Deborah and Holder who were prophetesses, but they were actually rare exceptions in an overwhelming trend and pattern of male leadership in teaching and governance. And so you don't make a rule out of an exception. And moreover, there's not one example in the entire Bible of a woman doing the congregational Bible teaching that is expected of pastors elders and elders in the New Testament church. It was, as I mentioned before, it was the priests who had the teaching responsibilities for the people. And the priesthood was all male. Moreover, even the women prophets Deborah and Huldah prophesied only, if you look it up, they only prophesied privately. They didn't prophesy to the congregation of people. Consider a few other things. Consider the example of the apostles. Jesus established a pattern of male leadership in the church when he appointed 12 men as apostles. And Jesus, as the head of the church, is a man. And the 12 apostles who will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel are men. Just think about that. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. 
judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And whose names are written forever on the foundation of the holy city in Revelation 21? The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the, men, of the Lamb. All men. So eternally, there's no eternal modelling of equal roles for men and women at all levels of authority in the church. Rather, there's a pattern, the pattern of male leadership in the highest governing roles of the church, a pattern that all believers will be able to see for all eternity on the 12 foundations. But this is where the world doesn't agree with us. I believe the male leadership doesn't diminish female personhood and dignity. You see, the church began as entirely Jewish and soon expanded to other nations, but the church didn't begin all male and only later included females. Christ's followers were male and female from the beginning, and both men and women were present at the beginning of the church at Pentecost. Although there are occasional examples of women having leadership in government positions, there is a queen, Athalia, regarded, regained, regained, reigned as the sole monarch in two kings. Have a look if you want a, a female exception. Athalia in 2 Kings 11, 1, when Athalia, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. Not a very good queen by the looks. And as such, I don't think that's an example we should try to copy. And though there were occasionally women such as Deborah and Huldah who are prophetesses, we should notice that they're exceptions to the rule. They're not a pattern to be copied. Because they occurred in, a, in the midst of a tradition of pattern of male leadership in teaching and governance. And there's not one example in the entire Bible of a woman doing the kind of congregational Bible teaching that's expected of pastors and elders in the New Testament church. So the Old Testament was the priests who did the teaching. Priesthood was exclusively male. And even the women, prophets Deborah and Huldah, prophesied only privately, not publicly, to a congregation of people. History of the church follows that. There's a record. And so I really think we need to advise caution to people who are saying that the entire church through its entire history has been wrong about this. Another objection some people say is that if God's genuinely called a woman to be a pastor, she shouldn't be prevented from acting as one. Well, God's not going to do anything contrary to his scripture, is he? No matter how viewed that call may be. And if the Bible teaches that God wills for men alone to bear the primary teaching and governing responsibilities of the pastorate, then it is only for men. However, when a woman, what a woman discerns as a divine cause of the pastorate may indeed be a call to full-time Christian ministry, just not as an elder in, or pastor in a church. Opportunities for women are abounding. Think about this, 75% of the world is either women or children. 75%. Both areas which women are free to minister in. 
There are staff positions for women in counselling and women's ministries, in Christian education, in Christian ministries, in ministries to the poor, in administrative positions that don't involve a governing and teaching role. There's no reason for women to feel held back from opportunities for life-giving ministries. So, in conclusion, what do you think the Church of Australia would look like if it followed those biblical guidelines? It'd be healthier, it'd be stronger. And both men and women will have a greater sense of joy in fulfilling the roles that God's given them in the Word. They'd know how to live, less confusion. And we know that wherever there's obedience to the Word of God, He brings blessing. Throughout the history of the Church, and to even today, the vast majority of large, growing, successful churches are pastored by men. And when you visit churches where people live within their guidelines, there's a wholesomeness, there's a joy, there's a sense of wholeness in being who God has made us to be as a man or a woman. God brings blessing when we obey his word. So as we draw the message to a close, we have to ask this question. Are you tempted to break fellowship over this issue? Because that's what the world wants us to do. They want us to disagree and rant and rave and then they'll cut us off from one another and then they'll take the ball and go home. But if you're in the Church of Christ, that's not the way it goes. And one of our strengths is that we, as a movement, the Church of Christ, is that on essentials, we have unity. In matters which are not the core of salvation through faith in Jesus, we provide to each other tolerance. But in everything, we extend love towards one another and these three messages just just scratch the surface of this whole thing about men and women my, my prayer is that as you think about it for yourself that you'll be able to distinguish between what you'd love it to be and what the scripture says and that you would value what the scripture says above your own wishes because we're looking at what is the plain plain message of the scripture I mean, I've seen some pretty fancy finaglings of people to go around and, and twist, not twist, but to pull out little bits of this to, to come to other conclusions. This is the plain, the, what you see if you just take it plainly. And my prayer is that we'll talk lovingly with one another at all times if we want to discuss these issues and that we'll value one another enough to listen without our own answer running in the background. Because we do need to sharpen iron, need to sharpen iron. We do need to be on a continual program of taking responsibility for our own uniqueness and using it for the good of others. But more importantly, using it for the glory of God. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, there's something immensely powerful in... Uh, and affirming in saying, how did you make us, Lord? We want to be the way you made us. We know it's confused because of the curse of sinfulness. We know that Jesus has destroyed every power of the curse. And in you, we can get back to the garden through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we think about the fact that we may have to swim against the tide, Lord, we want to keep that soft heart that trusts your way. 
we want to move in courage to trust the way you found us. And we want to enjoy the liberation of doing things God's way for God's glory. Amen. <laughs>